This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. You can make money the hard way becoming a bullfighter. Or save money the easy way with Xfinity Mobile. It sure beats making money as a human cannonball. Now through March 21st, learn how existing Xfinity customers can get a free line of unlimited intro for a year when they buy one unlimited line. That's hundreds of dollars in savings on your wireless bill. Visit XfinityMobile.com today. Restrictions apply. Xfinity Mobile requires Xfinity Internet. Reduced speeds after 20 gigabytes of usage per line. Data thresholds may vary. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. There's a point in my life where, I don't know if you know, I was trying to finish my PhD, and I'd been working at it for four years, and we just started rehearsing a band. I'd always been in bands, I'd always been playing, but we started rehearsing quite seriously this group, which was going to be called Queen. Um, so I went off for 30 years and played music. But <laughs> during that 30 years, I never really lost sight of, of astronomy and astrophysics as it became. And I found that the fact that I was a scientist was actually always helpful to me in, in being a, in a musician. That's Brian May, the renowned guitarist and founding member of the rock band Queen. I spoke with him a few months after Queen's 50th anniversary and at a time when he's long since finished that PhD. He's now working with NASA on several projects, including employing yet another of his skills in 3D imaging to take spectacular pictures of Pluto and its moons. This is a real thrill for me because you're so many people at once. And I'm so impressed with that. Are you impressed by how many things you do? Usually people aren't impressed by their own magnificence. (laughs) My wife isn't very impressed (laughs) because she says, you know, you're always damn well doing something and you never sit down and you never have time to breathe. You know, she's right. I I do too much of everything, I suppose. Being a perfectionist in a lot of different directions is probably not very healthy. It's interesting to me that I think right around the time you were a little boy, C.P. Snow was making his famous speech where he said there are two cultures, science and the arts, and they don't communicate and it's getting worse. And here you were coming along to defy that notion. I'm glad you say that. Yeah, I I, I think that's my life's mission somehow. Yeah, because I don't believe there is a difference between arts and science. Tell about that. That's so interesting. I don't think so either. I think that there's similarities that that are too hard to miss. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was drummed into me, as probably yourself when I was growing up, that you had to choose your path. And if you took science, you couldn't be an artist, etc. And I hated it at the time. I rebelled against it. And it, that notion has persisted with me all my life. I, I always felt that I'm fighting against being put in a box. And I found 
that were, whatever steps I have taken, which would apparently take me to one extreme or another, they always brought me in a circle back to the, the centre. Where And the centre, I think, is where you realise that to be an artist and a scientist and a human being are all completely complementary and, and make perfect sense. There's a point in my life where, I don't know if you know, I, I was trying to finish my PhD. I'd done three years and then I did another year just supporting myself by teaching in a school, teaching maths. Mm. And we just started rehearsing a band. I'd always been in bands. I'd always been playing. But we started rehearsing quite seriously, this group, which was going to be called Queen. And um, so it was all going on at one time and I wasn't really sleeping. I mean, being a teacher is enough. You probably know, you know, just to keep ahead of the students is, <laughs> is really difficult. You have to get up every morning knowing that you're one step ahead of them or else you, you die. You, you, you get fed to the lions. You know, so I, I, I wasn't sleeping and I had to make a decision. And I, I felt like I was not really making enough headway in the thesis. I, I tried... I tried to please my supervisor too many times and he kept saying, no, go away and do a bit more of this and a bit more of that, a little bit more. And I just thought, no, I can't do this anymore. Um, and I thought I was doing the scientific community a favor by leaving because <laughs> I just didn't think I was a very good scientist. And in your mind, you were actually leaving, huh? You, were, you, weren't, you weren't just taking a pause to come back in a little while. You, you felt you were giving it up for music. Yeah, I was throwing it up. The project. I, I'm not saying I was throwing up science forever, but I was definitely throwing up my PhD. I thought it was over. In spite of the fact that I'd written it up and got all the illustrations together, everything, you know, I just couldn't get to that final point. Um, so I went off for 30 years and played music. But <laughs> during that 30 years, I never really lost sight of, of astronomy and astrophysics as it became. Um, and I found that the fact that I was a scientist was actually always helpful to me in, in being a, in a musician, to being a musician in some way. Some of the ways are obvious, like I wrote this song called 39, which is about uh, a relativistic time traveller coming back, and he's only a year older, but everybody that he loves is 100 years older. In other words, gone. Um, so that's a kind of obvious connection, but there are less obvious connections. I think my astronomy and scientific background was always with me while I was making the music but what happened was though having walked away from the science I became very friendly with a, a man called Patrick Moore now to Americans he's probably not the icon that we regard him as but Patrick Moore Sir Patrick Moore was the guy who more than anyone else was the pivotal outreach for astronomy in the UK he's the reason that everybody knew what was going on up up there in, in the heavens a television show which he presented for 50 years non-stop. I think that's a record. There's no TV show anywhere in the world which had one presenter for 15 years. He missed one show during that time because he had a bad egg. <laughs> he <had laughs> got sick. Egg. Yeah. Yeah. But he, he was the most wonderful guy. And he became... So he became a mentor of yours? Yes. He became like a sort of surrogate uncle and mentor to me. And he would say to me every now and again, Brian, you should finish your PhD. You're absolutely capable. And I would, I would Patrick, I can't do that. My brain doesn't do that anymore. You know, I'm a, I've been a musician for 30 years. He said, nonsense, of course you can. So I started mentioning it, I suppose, talking in interviews. And I suddenly got uh, a phone call. Because it was phone calls in those days. Um, this is not that long ago, what was it, 10 years ago, uh, from the head of astrophysics at Imperial College. Now, that's where I started. 
But the, the new head of astrophysics, Professor Michael Rowan Robinson, said, I happen to have noticed in an interview of yours that you're talking about going back and finishing off your PhD. If you're serious, I will be your supervisor and I'll organise you coming back here to finish it. Mm. He said, I won't, do, I won't make life easy for you, but I'll promise you that um, you, you'll get the fair shot. <laughs> so what can you say? So I threw up everything for a year, everything, cleared the decks and got a little office in Imperial College where I started off and, to cut a long story short, finished the PhD, which was tough. Tough in a couple of ways, I, I would imagine, because here you had achieved some of the greatest fame that it's possible to get, named as one of the greatest guitarists of all time. And to stop that and go back to a prior love, I, I imagine it, it took you more than an hour to figure out you were going to do that. It was pretty strange. I'm still in a little bit of a shock that you even know who I am, Alan, because you're a hero of mine, you know. Just, just <laughs> let me throw that in, okay? This guy knows who I am, that's what I do. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. That's very kind of you. No, no, it's not kind, it's the truth, yeah. But yeah, yeah, it was very tough. And the other thing that was tough was suddenly you're being judged the whole time and, um, and being told what to do and being told you're not good enough to, and all that stuff came back. I found that really hard. And I think three solid times I made the decision that I would give it up. I, I just thought, I cannot do this anymore. I can't subject myself to this kind of torture. I rediscovered what it's like to be a student, which is shit. You know, it's hard. Everybody's kind of pressing down on you. In addition, you know, I'm, I'm talking about sort of requalifying myself. In addition to discovering what had been actually going on in my field of astrophysics for 30 years. Now, that was that's also tough, you know, just the reading that you have to do to catch up. The lucky thing was um, the motions of interplanetary dust were not a hot topic for most of that 30 years. It was regarded as a subject which had kind of been done. We knew what our local dust cloud was doing. So cosmology was much more interesting. Uh, you know, let's, let's look at distant galaxies and quasars and stuff. Just to be clear, for folks who aren't up on your um, thesis, it was a study of dust within our solar system, not dust between galaxies. That's right, although there is a connection, as we know now. But yes, it, it was very local astronomy. It's solar system astronomy. We have all these planets in the, the sun's little family. We have their moons. We have asteroids. We have comets. And we have dust. We have a lot of dust. And the mission at the time was to find out where the dust was coming from, where it was going, what it had to do with the formation of the solar system, etc., etc. You know, until I read your thesis... Oh, you did? Uh, well, I didn't read the whole thing, but I read a lot of it. Mm -hmm. And I, I had not known until then that there was such a thing as the zodiacal light. Zodiacal light, yes. And that, that's a result of dust. Uh, what is it? What's the experience like? Describe it, because I don't think I've ever seen it. Well, unfortunately, those of us who live in cities these days very seldom get the chance to see it. It's a real shame. We've been deprived of the night sky experience by all this light pollution everywhere and, and atmospheric pollution. If you're in a nice place which has no uh, ambient light, you know, go in a, 
in the middle of the desert or out in the middle of the ocean, then you, you stand a chance of seeing this stuff, you know, all these things. And what happens is the sun will go down and the sun follows a line called the ecliptic, which, which is basically the line the, the sun moves along in the sky. The sun goes down along this line of the ecliptic and then as it gets darker, you see twilight go down and things gradually start to get dark. At about an hour after sunset, it's pretty dark. But if you're lucky, you would still see a little cone of milky light. Look, it looks a little like the Milky Way, standing up along that ecliptic line, along the line which the sun has just travelled downwards. And that is the light reflected off dust in the solar system. Uh, it's in the plane of the solar system. You know, the solar system would all fit into sort of two saucers front to front, mm. and most of the dust lies within that shape. So that zodiacal light is really the sun lighting up the dust. It's sunlight reflected, yeah. It goes around the whole solar system, right? Yeah. What did you learn about that that was something new that we hadn't known before? Which <laughs> is the big question. Well, I was in Tenerife, which was a good place to see it at, at the time, and it still is a pretty good place. The Canary Islands are, are very well controlled as regard light pollution. What I was doing, most people were doing photometry of the, of the zodiacal light, just measuring the brightness and mapping you know, how bright it was at certain times of the year. But what I was able to do was look at that sunlight reflected off the dust and take spectra of it, look at the spectrum of its light, and I was able to see shifts in the lines in that spectrum, which means they're Doppler shifts. So, you know, when a car comes towards you or, or a motorbike or something, it goes, that kind of thing. Well, that's the Doppler shift. When it's coming towards you, the waves of sound are compressed, so it's got a high-pitched sound. As it passes you, the, the waves get spread out, and it, you get a lower frequency as it's going away. That's a Doppler shift, right? The same thing happens in light. If you're looking at light that's reflected off a dust particle, and the dust particle happens to be moving towards you, the frequency gets increased. So that's, you know, if it's going away from you, then the frequency will get decreased. So, you know, so that's what I was looking at. I had a spectrometer, very crude spectrometer, not exactly a telescope, a thing called a coelostat, which is a thing that kind of, it's, it, it gives you a bucket full of light from a certain part of the sky. It's not so sophisticated as, as a telescope. It just enables you to see a patch of sky and take a spectrum of it. I set it all up in the, um, in the Canaries, and I saw the shifts of one particular spectral line. And I was able to map the, the speed and direction of movement of the dust. So why was the dust moving away from us or toward us? I would think it would just be going in a circle. The Earth is going around pretty fast in an elliptical orbit. The dust is going around in various orbits. Some inside our orbit, you know, some closer to the sun, some further away from us, and all different speeds. And we didn't know at the time whether they were going around the same direction as us or going the opposite direction. I mean, if they're going the opposite direction, you get a big Doppler shift because uh, you, you've got a big relative velocity between us so and the dust. So do they go in the opposite direction at the same time that others are going the other way? It turns out some of them do, yeah. Ah, I see, I get it And now. that gives you a clue as to their origin, Basically, what we concluded was that what we were looking at is a mixture of dust from comets, debris left by comets as they come and visit the sun and go away again. You know, their, their tail spews out gas and dust, so some of that. And we thought we were also seeing the debris from collisions uh, between objects in the asteroid belt. So there are certain families of 
asteroids, which we were able to model and give us the kind of distribution of dust that we saw and the kind of velocity distribution that we saw. Is it true that your your observation of how to identify what the dust is and where what it's doing gives us a better way to know how to make our adjustments as we try to look through it? You're absolutely spot on, yeah. To a lot of astronomers, the zodiacal light is regarded as light pollution. It's something they don't want to see because it's getting in the way of them seeing further out into the universe. So yes, the fact that we were able to help map it is a very good way to enable people to subtract the zodiacal light and, and to see what they're looking for. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely spot on. It's not just that it, it, it obscures the light, it's more that it gives you pollution, it gives you light that you don't want there. I was going to add the last part of my story, which is the luckiest part for me. What happened was, here we have our local dust cloud, and we think we know all about it, more or less, you know. But suddenly, in the period when I was away from astronomy, the human race discovered exoplanets. It discovered that almost every other star, as well as the sun, has a family of planets. Not only that, it has a dust cloud. Every solar system, every stellar system throughout the universe appears to have a dust cloud, very similar to our own in many ways. So suddenly, how do we study dust clouds? Oh, we have one here. Let's go back and and take a closer look at our own dust cloud, the zodiacal light uh, cloud. So suddenly what I was doing became of interest. It became kind of trendy again. Uh, So I was very lucky in that. And and dust is, is really everything. You know, if you're looking at evolution of stars and planets, I'm just in the, in the course of rewriting a book on it at the moment called Bang! Exclamation mark, the Complete History of the Universe. Um, yeah. A very modest title. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so much has happened. I mean, when we first wrote the book, I think we knew about a dozen different exoplanets, planets in other systems. Now we know yeah. about 4,000, and we've seen a lot of dust clouds. People have actually imaged these dust clouds, and we know that at certain times you can see planets evolving from the dust. So dust clouds are an essential part, like the central part of the evolution of everything in the universe. And the dust is the debris from previous um, supernovas, from previous stars that have been born and burned and died. Did I get it right that you actually built the instrument you were observing with? I did. I, I, to be honest, I took it over. Um, my department in, in astronomy had already been doing this kind of experiment. So I took over the existing apparatus that they had and updated it, modified it, built my own um, processing equipment, which was incredibly crude in those days. You know, it's Yeah, but it might have been crude, but this sounds like a real pattern of yours. There you were, an avid guitar player, and you were 17 and you built your own damn guitar. Yeah, I did with my dad. Bless my dad. Yeah, my dad helped me in everything I wanted to do. And he had lots of skills, which he passed on to me. My dad was amazing. Must have. Must have. The the charming part of that story, to me, is that you made this guitar, which served you brilliantly. And you made it out of things you found around the house. Yeah. What were some of the parts that you got from different parts of the house? Uh, Well, there was a hundred-year-old fireplace um, made of beautiful mahogany. Uh, So that was my neck. I made the neck out of that, and it's fabulous. I mean, it's as strong as steel, you know, and I also made it quite thick because I have quite quite big hands and and, uh, 
So for that reason also, it's a very stable neck. Piece of oak out of a table that my dad had lying around, that's the main part of the body. The rest of the body, that's the part that takes the strain. The rest of the body I made out of block board and I chiseled out the, the blocks so that it was thin in some areas like, a, like an acoustic guitar is. So I wanted a guitar that resonated, um, which was a bit out of fashion in those days because Les Pauls and uh, Stratocasters are made so that they don't resonate. That's the whole idea. Huh. But me, having seen Jimi Hendrix and Pete Townsend make a guitar feedback, that's what I wanted. I, want the guitar, I wanted the guitar to be alive. So something in my head was saying, try this, I suppose. So I, I don't know if I was a brilliant designer or if I was really lucky, but it actually worked. It does, the guitar does resonate in the right kind of way. And gives me lovely feedback. You and your dad even used buttons from your mom's button box. Oh yeah, and and knitting needles. What were the what were yeah. the knitting needles for? Ah, uh, well, the knitting needle is the piece that goes on the the whammy bar on the the, the tremolo arm. Yeah, my mom had some big thick. Sort of, uh, you just got too technical for me there. I don't know what a whammy bar. Oh, uh, it's, it's the thing which makes the strings go up and down. A whammy. The, the tremolo is the proper name for it. It's a tremolo. Uh. And, uh, I, I designed my my tremolo was was also designed. You know that that was a that was a unique design, and I used some motorbike valve springs to to balance the the pull of the strings, so that uh, this little rocker thing where the strings were fastened would would be balanced. So that's my tremolo. So it's it's all made from junk. Well, not junk, but you know stuff that <laughs> that was going to be useful someday. And you played this in some of in your. Your greatest performances, right? You took it on the road? Everywhere. Yeah, yeah. And now we make them. I have a little guitar company. When we come back from our break, Brian May, Dr. Brian May, tells me about another of his inventions, a 3D viewer now being used by NASA to check out asteroids. Clear and Vivid can be downloaded for free because it's supported by our sponsors and by, as they say, people like you. But there are no people like you. You're you. We want to make sure you know about patreon.com slash clearandvivid. That's where, if you love hearing from the extraordinary guests we have on our shows, you can become a patron and get early access to special videos. And at the highest tier, you can join me in our monthly get-together online. I think you'll find out that the listeners to our podcast are often as much fun to hear from as our guests. We're grateful to you all. Thank you. And don't forget to check out patreon.com slash clear and vivid. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. You can make money the hard way becoming a bullfighter. Or save money the easy way with Xfinity Mobile. It sure beats making money as a human cannonball. Now through March 21st, learn how existing Xfinity customers can get a free line of unlimited intro for a year when they buy one unlimited line. That's hundreds of dollars in savings on your wireless bill. Visit XfinityMobile.com today. Restrictions apply. Xfinity Mobile requires Xfinity Internet. Reduce speeds after 20 gigabytes of usage per line. Data thresholds may vary. 
In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Brian May. We'd been talking about how he has a company selling versions of his homemade guitar. You have another company, too, I, I think, of Stereoptics. I do. Tell about that. What I don't know much about that. Well, that's a, that's a whole different story. Yes. I mean, the, well, I didn't make the first one. The first one I got from eating Weetabix. Do you get Weetabix <laughs> where you are? <laughs> we used to get we, Weetabix. We don't have them over here at all. You don't think. have Weetabix? Well, it's a cereal which we had when we were kids. And when I was a kid, when you opened a cereal packet, there was always a toy in it. There was always something great in there, like a little yeah. plastic plane or, I don't know, some, some puzzle or whatever. Well, inside this particular packet, there were little stereo cars about this size um, and two pictures on this, on this little card which looked identical, but they actually weren't identical. So, for instance, you get two pictures of a hippopotamus. Why is that? And it said on the back, send away one and sixpence and a packet top, and we will send you a stereoscope to look at this. So I did that, and in the post came this little stereo viewer, and you put the card in, and suddenly the magic happens. Suddenly it's not two pictures, flat pictures of a hippopotamus. It feels like you're looking through a window and it's a real live hippopotamus in, in all its solidity. Uh, and you, you feel like you could touch it. So that was total magic for me. I just thought, if you can take pictures like this, which are real and 3D, why, does everybody, why doesn't everybody do this the whole time? Why would you want to take flat pictures if you can take uh, 3D pictures? So I was hooked. That was it. And for the rest of my life, and still to this day, I just get a thrill from everything that's 3D. I How mean, old were you when you got the, the, uh, the wheat I, bits? I, I think I was about 10. You know, I was about that same age, 10, 11, 12, when I, was, I became obsessed with stereoptics. You did? Ah. Yeah, and for the next 20 or 30 years as a hobby... Hmm. I would read science magazines to try to figure out how the eyes worked oh. to see if you could fool one eye into looking at one picture and the other eye looking at the other picture so you wouldn't need a device. And, of course, you can, right? These little cards that came in the Weetabix packet, I figured out that you could do that. I figured out I could relax my eyes without oh. the viewer and the right eye would see the right picture and the left eye would see the left one and I could see it in 3D. So I'm, I'm on the same path that you're on. And I'm thinking, you know, I, I don't actually need a viewer because I can get my eyes to do this. And it happened with wallpaper. You know, when you're looking at wallpaper, which has a repetitive pattern on it, I, if I relaxed my eyes, I could see it in a different way and it looked as if the wallpaper was six inches away from my face, all that kind of stuff. At this point in our conversation, Brian took a moment to fetch another invention of his, a stereoscopic viewer that works with an iPhone. He calls it the Owl. I've sold a lot of people in NASA on it now. You know, I've, I've been working with, and a lot of them now have their owls and they can look at things in stereo this way. 
And I've also seen a, a picture. I didn't have a, a viewer to look at it with, but I saw a picture that you made of an asteroid. Probably the, the Rosetta, Rosetta's Comet, it may have been. I don't know. But I've been working on, on asteroids like Bennu from Osiris-Rex, and I was able to put together as part of the team of New Horizons the very first stereo picture of Pluto when they did their flyby. So mm. I've been so privileged to be a part of all this stuff. You were talking about asteroids. That, asteroids have interested me for a long time, and I get the impression they interest you a lot too. They do. What about, I can't say it right, Wamuamu? Oh, yeah. Wamuamua? How do you say it? I'm not sure how I say it, to be honest. We were talking about it just yesterday. Wamua, I think they say. Yeah, right. Wamua, yeah. Well. Tell about that. What's your opinion? (laughs) Well, I think it is uh, an interstellar visitor. And it's not so much that things are coming, sort of driving into our solar system. What's happening is the solar system is halfway down one of the spiral arms of the of the, the huge galaxy which we live in, the Milky Way galaxy, and it's moving around. So as it moves around, it's moving through whatever happens to be there. It's like if you're going along a road, you know, and there's, there's insects in the air, you're flying through them. So whatever happens to be in our path as the whole solar system moves, we will see coming through the solar system. The reason you can tell it's from outside, it's a foreigner, is it's going too fast to be part of our family. All of our families, well, you know this, all of our family is, is captured. It stays together because it's in a, in a, in a gravity well. So all, this, all the planets, all the comets, all the asteroids are, are, have a maximum speed above which they can't go or they would disappear. They, they mm. wouldn't be able to stay in this, this sort of captured mm. state. Mm. Well, Uamua, or whatever you call it, <laughs> was going too fast. It, it, it was going too fast to be in a captured orbit, so it must have come from outside. And um, I was less surprised than most people because we thought in 1970 that we saw interstellar dust grains as well as the captured dust. We thought we saw dust streaming through the system in the same way as Uamua is. Ah. But my supervisor said, don't publish that. They'll all laugh at you. <laughs> so, so I didn't. Um, but it makes me feel glad that actually we saw visitors from interstellar space, I think, before, long before we were seeing these large objects. That's that wonderful feeling that's reported to me by so many scientists. <laughs> the feeling of having discovered something and being someone who knows something that nobody else knows. <laughs> yeah. The first yeah. light of discovery. I've been interested in asteroids for a long time because they seem like a neglected form of destruction huh. that we're we're possibly prone to. Huh. I mean, the, the, the theory I think is still accepted that the dinosaurs went away because of the huge impact on the Yucatan. Yeah. So a question I have, because I think you're the person to ask because you've given this so much thought. How big does an asteroid have to be to cause real Earth-wide damage? And how big does it have to be for us to be able to observe its coming and maybe do something about it? In other words, can a really small one sneak in and cause a lot of damage anyway? 
Well, that's, uh, that stuff is, is very current thought. I, I've been part of founding a thing called Asteroid Day, which is designed to try and find answers to some of those questions. There are various projects looking for potential uh, near-Earth asteroids which could cause damage. In answer to the first question, it doesn't have to be very big to destroy a city. A few feet across, right in the middle of any one of our major cities. You mean like a, a Volkswagen shape? Yeah, something like that would do, would pretty much obliterate a city. It doesn't need to be it doesn't need to be many feet or many meters across. Um, to cause worldwide extinction, I think you're looking at about. A, I don't quote me, but I would think you know somewhere near a kilometer across will guarantee you that. Um, those things are hard to see. Um, Partly because they're dark, a lot of them are very dark and, and not not very well lit up in the sky. Partly because sometimes they come from a, a place that's hard to view them. Like if they're close to the sun, it would be very very hard to see them. Uh, um, even a big one, huh? Yeah, and of course, by the time you see them, it's probably too late to take evasive action. So what people are doing at the moment is trying to look at everything that's moving in orbits that might intersect ours and plot those orbits and predict where they're going to come each time, every time they come close. But um, certainly there's a lot of effort now going into predicting what could happen. And also, if it should be a threat, uh, finding ways to, to avoid the damage. So I'm involved in at least one project called HERA, which is uh, sending a probe towards a near-Earth asteroid and seeing if we can deflect it, seeing how big a, an event it takes to, to move its orbit enough to make it miss the Earth if it was going to hit us. Was this the um, asteroid that I saw images of with uh, its own little moon? Yes, that's the one. So there were two asteroids, one revolving around the other. Exactly. And you, you took part in the experiment to see if you could deflect it? It's upcoming. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm part of the, the team which is, is putting that experiment together. I'm a very small part. Good luck on that. <laughs> I'm hoping to get some stereo pictures out of it. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, and I, and I, I did the commentary for their, uh, their information video, which you may have seen. Yeah, Didymus. It's called Didymus. It sounds like you took a pause in your PhD work. But once you started music, you continued to do work in astrophysics. Yeah, not very much when I was on tour, to be honest. All I did when I was on tour, you know, those years when we toured and made an album, toured, made another album, yeah. I didn't have a lot of time for it, I'd, I'd be honest with you. It was really take, getting the PhD, finally getting my qualification opened the doors. Suddenly I felt like I could communicate with all these people. I read one little thing in your in your thesis that it registered an awful lot of uh, work and disappointment. Your thesis was typed up in 1974, almost completed, mm-hmm. and then it got lost. You had to start over from scratch? Well, no, no actually, it, it got put away in a drawer because I'm quite a, you know, I don't throw stuff away. I'm a hoarder. So it was, <laughs> yeah. it was there. No, it was there. And I took it out on tour this pile of papers, which was all typed up, and I retyped it into my laptop during that tour, one of the Queen tours. So I, I recreated it on, in a digital space, which was 
very satisfying. It was just great because suddenly I could let all these pieces of paper go and I had it all in my laptop. I could hardly end my conversation with Brian May, one of rock music's greatest guitarists, without finding out what he's been doing in music as well as astrophysics. And of course, despite the pandemic, or maybe because of it, he's been busy. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, you know about this stuff. (laughs) Yeah, well, I wrote a song called Panic Attack a couple of years ago for my uh, colleague, Kerry Ellis, to sing, who I work with a lot. I I can sing, but I don't regard myself as a singer. I I like to work with with a singer who can really interpret feelings and words. So I... Panic Attack was written from my point of view because suddenly I got to a point in my life where I was getting incredibly anxious and I did get panic attacks. So I wrote this song about that. When the pandemic came along, I realized that anxiety was growing everywhere. People were getting very panicky and feeling like this thing was never going to end and they were never going to see their children, they're never going to see their grandchildren, all this kind of stuff. Um, So I rewrote the song from that point of view. So it became Panic Attack 2021 subtitled, It's Going to Be All Right, because I figured what we need is some kind of belief that even though all our politicians have totally fucked it up, if you'll pardon the expression, there will be an end to this, because this this is the way things happen. You know, nature will find an end to it, if nothing else. We've had pandemics in the past, they come and they go. There will be a point where we'll say, ah, thank God we got through that. Let's be sure that it's going to be all right. We have that light at the end of the tunnel and we will get out of here. That's great. I wish there were more time to talk about 18 other things, but we've run <laughs> yeah. out of time. And we always end our shows with seven quick questions. I hope you're game for that. Okay, I'm game. And they, they're, they're quick questions. They can be quick answers. Okay. What do you wish you really understood? Uh, string theory. Hmm. <laughs> How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? The best way is to say, yeah, you're right, but. <laughs> you're right, the earth <laughs> is flat, however. Yeah, yeah, you're right, but think of this, yeah. Let yeah, me, yeah, let me yeah, put yeah, this good. to you, yeah. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Um, come back to it, come back to it. Okay, okay. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Ooh. You go, oh, is that the time? Shit. (laughs) (laughs) You say that very convincingly. Yeah. Oh, my God. 
got to go. Let's say you're at a dinner party sitting next to someone you don't know. Hmm. How do you strike up a genuine, true conversation with that person? I think you give something of yourself. I think you, you give an impression that you want to trust. You want to open a door. You give away a piece of, of something inside you, and that encourages them to do the same. Mm. What gives you confidence? Music, having a guitar in my hand. Last question. What book changed your life? Ooh, there's been a few. Out of the Silent Planet by C.S. Lewis. When did you read that? When? Yeah. Uh, oh, I was pretty young. Probably 13 or 14, yeah. Mm. Um, did that get you started on the path? Yeah, it's, it's, it is science fiction, but it's, a very, it's written from a very religious point of view. Now, I, I didn't turn out to be a religious man. You know, I, I don't really, I'm not a great Christian. You know, I, I, I don't feel particularly comfortable with any of the organized religions, but I guess I'm spiritual, and the contents of that book still has, have a resonance with me. And strangely enough, he made some amazing predictions about Mars. <laughs> I'm, mm. I'm currently part of the Perseverance team that landed a rover on Mars. You are? And yeah. I'm, again, I'm a tiny part. I'm, I'm trying to do little bits of um, stereoscopy with them because they have a stereo camera on board. In fact, they have more than one. Um, but, you know, he, he, he visualized Mars as, as, a, as a world which once was fertile and green, had waters and had, mm. had life. And the, the, the experiments that are going on uh, in the Perseverance rover are to see if that life actually did happen and, and, mm-hmm. and can we find the remains of that life. We know that there were rivers now. That part is true. We know there were seas, there was water. So w- did life come with that or not? Maybe we'll find out in the next couple of years. Okay, we're coming back to what's the strangest question anyone can have you come up with anything? Or is this going to have to remain the strangest question? This is the strangest question, yeah. Um, Apart from this, um, interesting. The only thing I can think of is I I went to a guitar factory way out in the wilds of of America. We were on tour and I was in the middle of of being a rock star or whatever. And we arrived in a limo, in a big, long, black um, Cadillac limo. That's what you had in those days. They don't, I don't think they exist anymore. And I got out somewhere near the factory, not knowing where I was. There's a couple of kids. And I said, do you know where the so-and-so factory is? And they went, oh, yeah, yeah, over there, you know. Got back in the car and wound down. And I heard, them, heard one of them saying to the other, he said, you know, that's Brian May. That's as wild as it gets. <laughs> that to me was the oddest thing I ever heard because <laughs> to me I was in a place which is very kind of foreign to me, you know. But to them I was like an alien from from another planet, and I, I it just tickled me. I never forgot that. Well, for me, this conversation has been about as wild as it gets. I've loved it. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much for taking the time. I, I know how busy you are. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Amazing. And you're a hero. And please continue to be one. Thank you so much, Brian. God bless, Adam. Bye for now. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. Our thanks to the Kavli Foundation for sponsoring both Clear and Vivid and our sister series, Science Clear and Vivid. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to the advancement of science for the benefit of humanity. 
Brian May's musical accomplishments as lead guitarist of Queen are too many to list. His solo in what is Queen's most famous song, Bohemian Rhapsody, has been voted the greatest guitar solo of all time. His scientific work on interplanetary dust and asteroids has been recognized by having an asteroid named after him, Asteroid 52665, also known as Brian May. As you might guess, Brian has a very active website at brianmay.com, and he has his own YouTube channel where you can find the full version of his song, Panic Attack 2021. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Next in our series of conversations, we have a return visit from Sherry Turkle. When last we talked a couple of years ago now, we had a great conversation about conversations. I'm looking forward to talking with her next week about her new book, The Empathy Diaries. It's a memoir which ties together her personal story with her research on technology, empathy, and ethics. Meanwhile, on Thursday, over on our other podcast, Science Clear and Vivid, I talk with Eugene and Kevin Shenderoff. They're brothers who came to America after being exposed to radiation from the Chernobyl explosion. They're now both physician researchers, and their personal experience shapes their relationship to their patients. I think in my case, it directly stems from my lived experience with uh, being a survivor of cancer and... uh, When I see the patient in front of me and we can have a discussion of their hopes, their dreams, their side effects of the treatment, it puts into stark relief that there is a person who needs to be given the proper care in order to achieve the quality of life that is best and that the things that are being developed as a researcher can be translated directly into how they impact someone. In my medical training, I realized that I really, really enjoyed working with critically ill patients in the ICUs and trying to understand how can we know who's going to become critically ill and how can we help them. Eugene and Kevin Shenderoff, next time on Science Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>